The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And uh, we've been this month mostly talking about freedom, and I've been mentioning to all of us that, you know, I think appropriately we have a little bit of skepticism because what the Buddha says and what other people say, it's it's pretty provocative that there is an end to suffering. That's, you know, there are these three instructions. There is suffering, and we should see our suffering as a teacher. That's the first, what we call in Buddhism, early Buddhism, the first noble truth. There is the pervasive experience of dissatisfaction, even when we have nice conditions. We have things the way we want them to be. If we're honest, if we look carefully, we'll see there's still insecurity even when we're really experiencing a lot of good fortune. And then there's the second noble truth, that there's a cause. There's a reason for that pervasive dissatisfaction and uneasiness, which is the heart mistakenly is trying to feed trying to get some nutriment from experience. We're demanding real satisfaction from something that can't deliver it. And the classic example many of us know is like an intimate relationship with another human being or an intimate relationship with a four-legged being, <laughs> you know, where we're trying to get some permanent satisfaction from our dog, our cat, our partner, our kids, our parents, or some, you know, person who we want their love, we want them to see us a particular way. And even if we somehow manage to get them to like us in the way we want to be liked or to see us in the way we want to be seen, we realize that that uneasiness in our heart, that kind of quivering and existential uneasiness, it's still there, even when we get what we think we want let alone when we don't get what we want, when we're living with a lot of difficulty in life. So that's the second noble truth, that there's a cause trying to feed, trying through attachment and identification to calm the uneasiness in our hearts. And then the Buddha says, but there is an end to suffering. That's the third noble truth. There is a way for to experience the heart unbound, unbounded, not in the grip of greed, not in the grip of hate. That's pretty profound. Like, you mean even when I have a body, even when I have a life, even when I live in a messy world where there's a lot of real injustice, a lot of suffering all around, even here and now, this heart, can express that um, unwavering openness, freedom, love. And maybe you even tasted a little bit of it during the guided meditation. This is, you know, to have a sense of the freedom that the Buddha experienced and that a lot of our spiritual ancestors experienced. You know, this is... Uh, bringing metta, bringing loving-kindness to mind is one of the most available ways to get a taste. 
I'm remembering, as some of you know, Joseph Goldstein, one of my really important teachers and sort of one of our elders in the sort of Western early Buddhism, Western insight meditation tradition. And one of Joseph's teachers was this uh, woman, uh, Deepama, and she was really one of, you know, a contemporary awakened person um, who practiced in Burma because her family lived there, even though she was from India. Uh, and she returned to India later in her life. But she was there. Um, I think her f husband was in the civil service in the uh, Burmese sort of colonial government. And uh, and then one of her kids died, her husband died, and the pain of that loss was so great, she went to the monastery, and one of the Mahasi, the Mahasi Center in Rangoon, and practiced and had real success in her practice and became quite wise and free. And Joseph's description of watching uh, Deepa Ma, you know, just do a simple bow, sort of love, bowing to love, right? It's like that it isn't somebody giving love or somebody receiving love. It's just love being love, freedom being free. Some of you know in one of the uh, early Buddhist texts, the path of purification, there's this wonderful little excerpt, something like uh, doing without a doer, suffering without a sufferer. And as a that's a really, I think, wise teaching because we have that perception, that way of understanding or experiencing like, yeah, there's doing, but no doer. Like some of you get that even dancing or doing some sports or walking or jogging or whatever. And there's sense of activity without any body doing the activity. Just like there are times when there's a lot of wisdom, there may feel like, oh yeah, there's this profound feeling of loss, but there's nobody burdened, nobody tight, nobody owning that pain of loss. And so maybe you've had this experience when you've been grieving, not all the time, of course, but in moments where you've really... Uh, learn to be unafraid of the pain of grief, the pain of loss. And then you have that experience like there is grief, there's the pain of loss that's moving, and there's nobody resisting, no friction, no problem with that movement of grief, that movement of the pain of loss. And it's sort of this paradoxical experience of being free, but from a subjective, ordinary human experience, there's somebody experiencing a lot of loss. But in those moments, there's a real freedom with the pain of loss. Hard to talk about, actually. But that's the freedom that the Buddhist teachings point to. And uh, that can be the conversation in the small groups later this morning. You know, what is our experience of... Um, feeling freedom through the trust in the heart's goodness. Because like I mentioned a moment ago, it's, it's considered one of the most available ways to taste that freedom. When we, you know, we, that capacity to be loving is there, but we have, to, you know, it's, it's not necessarily developed, and especially in some of us, you know, where what's developed is the habit of being irritated or being 
you know, bothered and critical and judgmental and, you know, those are the, you know, or wanting something more, wanting to be seen more, wanting nicer experience. So even though it's pretty nice, I want more of it or I want to own it so it doesn't go away. So we have a lot of developed habits. So we can instead train the heart to keep that expansive, generous, even boundless quality of love, or whatever word you want to use, that inner goodness, but to keep it in mind. And I really encourage all of us to do that. You know, Deepama, this, uh, you can actually see Deepama's picture behind me. We have them um, in a lot of our altars, the picture of Deepama. And she's come to the West a few times to IMS in Massachusetts before she passed away, um, maybe... 20 years ago or so. Um, but another thing Deepama said once to one of the teachers is, you know, I don't really experience a difference between metta and mindfulness. And so when we say like keeping metta in mind, it's really this part of Buddhist awareness practice where, you know, the nature of awareness, of wisdom and awareness, what we call mindful awareness, it's very nature is to be inclusive, like, oh, it's like this. This is being known. Now it's like this. Whether it's really painful or really beautiful, awareness has this capacity to show up, to include, oh, yeah, this is what's being felt. This is what's being seen. This is what's being known. And that's a lot like a trustworthy spiritual love, isn't it? Love, you know, that... Like when we think about those people that have that saintly capacity to be loving, you know, maybe it was your grandfather or your grandmother, or maybe you had some benefactor in your life who had that quality well developed in them. And it was like, it didn't come and go. That was, that's sort of the definition of someone who has really developed this quality is that it's pervasiveness. It's like becomes part of their character. You can kind of depend on it. And that's where we want to get. Because first and foremost, it's such a gift to oneself to know that I can trust my heart to be kind and tender and appreciative and balanced, no matter the twists and turns of my circumstance. It's um, liberating to have some confidence that no matter what happens to me or around me, the heart knows how to be loving. And that's really the the experience of the spiritual love or metta, or you can you know, call it your goodness, the, the inherent goodness of the heart. It has that nimble ability to show up and include no matter the particular situation at hand. That's how we recognize it. Yes to this too, yes to this, and yes to this. I don't have to be afraid here, I don't need to be afraid there, no matter the twists and turns. And this really helps us understand the intersection between wisdom and love. You know, wisdom really brings that, you know, love is this exposure, this saying yes, right? And the wisdom aspect of that universal love is like, it uh, knows, it teaches love how to be even, how to be steady and unwavering. 
like that aspect of equanimity with that friendliness, with that tenderness that can see suffering. But there's that that sort of foundational balance that heart is unshakable in the midst of joy, in the midst of sorrow. And then, of course, love brings something to wisdom too, right? It brings this more embodied, makes wisdom more embodied, more grounded and real because of love's capacity to include, to be close. So that's, I really find that valuable to really see what does love bring to how it really helps wisdom mature and how wisdom helps the experience of love to mature. And not to really separate them out as two different experiences. So again, just to review, like for those who are able to stay with Shannon and do some small groups for the last 15 minutes between 11.45 and noon, you know, you can talk about how you've experienced the prison of hate and fear and how you've experienced the opposite, like when hate and fear has been replaced with an openness, with love and wisdom, then what's the taste of that freedom? Where have you experienced that in your life? What's that experience like? So the freedom of love and the prison of hate for a topic. And again, even if you're not able to stay or don't want to stay for the small groups, find your own way to reflect on it. You might have a good Dharma friend or spiritual friend at home that you connect with during the week. Then share this. There's something about opening up. I mean, it's important that you have someone who knows how to listen and not to judge so that it's really a safe space. But this is a powerful way to deepen our practice is to cultivate these spiritual friends, whether you do it in these ways we help create here at Common Ground, but also finding your own way at home. And you could probably even do it in, in terms of journaling. And you know, the difference between these two worlds of the, the world of wisdom and love that has the flavor of freedom. That's how we learn. That's how we find a way as we intuit, taste that quality of freedom, the heart not being bound. And the same way, that's how we get familiar with the prison of hate and the prison of fear and the prison of lust is we feel the constriction. We notice something's bound up. Something doesn't feel right. And some of you remember, I think I mentioned it not that long ago in one of the Sunday morning talks, but there's an indigenous story here from, um, I think, the Cheyenne tradition, the Native Americans um, nation of the Cheyenne people. And uh, and it's usually told as uh, one of the elders talking to one of their grandchildren about, you know, a story, or sometimes it's told that the child comes to the elder to the grandparent and says, you know, I'm having trouble in my life with somebody who's bothering me or mistreating me and I really hate them or I want to get even with them. And then the elder tells a story about, you know, how they too have like two wolves in their heart and one is quite good and generous and wise and free and fearless. And the other one just wants to burn everything down and eat everything up and tear everything apart. And then the the child asks the elder, well, who wins? <laughs> sort of the obvious question. And the wise elder has the great response. Well, depends which one you feed. 
And this is the thing about, this is a nice, simple description of our situation. Because in a way, whenever we're, it's not about being angry, it's being identified with the hate, being like willing to be the person, the one who's afraid, identifying with fear, identifying with greed, the one who needs, the one who will be happy only if I get X, Y, and Z. It's that identification or that attachment, that's what feeds the wolf that's going to eat everything up and burn everything down. And it's the same, we can develop and cultivate and feed and eventually really trust and abide with freedom, with love, with wisdom, if we feed it. And we feed it by keeping it in mind. And it's interesting how um, kind of a principle in Jungian psychology, you know, how in a funny way we're more afraid of being good than we are about being bad. It's like, I think the way it's described in in sort of psychological terms is that if we really start to own, recognize and own the capacity of the heart to be wise and good, then we'll feel obliged, like, oh, I have to, you know, it's almost like I'm kind of attached to being bad and narrow and tight and mean, you know. So if I really honestly recognize this capacity for goodness and wisdom, I'll have to say goodbye to what I've learned to trust, you know, my you know, constricted nature. This is um, from Robert Johnson, who's a Jungian an, an, uh, analyst. It's in one of Jack Kornfield's book. He's quoting this person, Robert A. Johnson. Curiously, people resist the noble aspects of their shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It's more disrupting to find that you have a profound nobility of character than to find out that you are a bum. (laughs) And the Buddha, of course, says, you know, if it weren't possible to manifest real freedom, real love and wisdom in your life, I wouldn't tell you that it's possible. But because it is possible, I tell you, you know, it's possible. And I wouldn't tell you that it's possible to abandon these narrow, constricted habits of hate and fear and greed. But because it is possible to go beyond, to abandon, I tell you, it's possible. And again, uh, remembering Thich Nhat Hanh, who passed away recently, here's a quote. He's talking about the same thing. And uh, Dan sent me this recently from um, uh, something that he had come across one of our uh, program hosts, um, and it's from Thich Nhat Hanh, and it goes like this. Sometimes I feel caught between two opposing selves, the false self imposed by society and what I would call my true self. How often we confuse the two and also assume society's mold to be our true self. Battles between our two selves rarely result in a peaceful reconciliation. Our mind becomes a battlefield on which the five aggregates, form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, and consciousness of our being 
are strewn about like debris in a hurricane. Trees topple, branches snap, houses crash. And that's when we misinterpret the teaching and we feel like the good wolf has to devour and get rid of the bad wolf. You know, or my love has to conquer hate. All we need to do is keep in mind what's present. So when hate is present and fear is present, right? Because what knows how to show up honestly and see that hate or fear or denial or lust and greed, like if only I get this, then I'll be okay. Only love and wisdom know how to understand and see, oh, it's like this now. So we don't have to get rid of the so-called negative habits of mind. We meet them because that intention to see clearly is wisdom and love already. Only wisdom and love knows how to honestly recognize, oh, honey, darling, I'm here for you. I see you. I see the suffering. And that's why I'm showing up. Because I care. And immediately, right then, the heart that knows that there's hate is in hate. Seeing hate honestly, seeing fear, feeling it, that's not fear and hate. That's wisdom and love. Only wisdom and love can have an honest, inclusive relationship with the hate, with the fear, with the distraction and denial, the closing down, be you know, identification with being the victim, being the one who needs, who's desperate, who's stingy, or whatever narrow, constricted space we can tend to be in. The Dharma move is so much more simple than we think. The wrong idea that takes us down the wrong road is to imagine I'm this really screwed up human being with all these habits of anger and hate and fear and greed and conceit and comparing mine. And I'm just so entangled with these bad habits. And I have to somehow find a way to get rid of all that conditioning picked up through our cultural conditioning process and through our parents and through our friends and you know, we just, that sympathetic vibration with the ignorance, the kind of legacy of the pain and suffering. And we're, in a way, the body, sensitive heart and mind, we are the innocent victims of coming through, being, you know, we're conditioned by all of the pain of the past that wasn't met with wisdom and love. And just gets buried in our collective bodies, actual bodies, and then our cultural body. And then, you know, it's just reverberating with the hate of racism and the hate of sexism and the, you know, hate of having and fear of someone taking what I have and the, the kind of contraction of not having, ideas of not having, being left out and wanting more. And we're all trapped, imprisoned by these patterns, all of us, regardless of our particular cultural locations around gender or whatever it might be, body size. But the move is quite simple. It's this that 
just little by little, that's why we practice in these simple ways. You know, we create a safe environment to practice some corner of our home that's relatively uncluttered in a comfortable chair or cushion with our cell phone shut off and our pets leaving us alone and our partners and friends and people we live with leaving us alone for a period of time. And in that relative simplicity, we practice recognizing the capacity for wisdom and love. We follow the thread, the pleasure of freedom, of the heart that realizes, I don't have to be afraid of being open. I don't have to be afraid of feeling here. And we practice relaxing. being love that loves for no particular reason. Wisdom that includes, wisdom that sees and feels clearly and deeply. You know, we can't own this wisdom and love, but we can trust it. And that's the thing. We don't, we can't even own it enough to believe that I can, you know, tell somebody about it. Like even the need to be able to talk about it with a friend can be a trap. Because what's the only thing that's actually relevant is to be able to trust it and to keep it in mind. Because by trusting it and keeping it in mind, that's what develops it. And it, over time, replaces the habit of abiding in these constricted places where the mind is under the influence of fear and greed and hate. This is from Sharon Salzberg's book, Loving Kindness, which is just a wonderful text. Sharon writes, The force of metta, loving kindness, allows us to cohere, to come together within ourselves, within all beings. So that's the flavor of that freedom. It has both the the sense of not being burdened by the reality of the moment, but also that, and again, it sounds, it's hard to talk about, it sounds like a paradox. So on the one hand, the heart is empty of that constriction, not, doesn't feel burdened, but on the other hand, the heart feels whole, inclusive, or unified, not apart, not separate. So it, it sort of feels like, well, if I really felt whole with the whole world, the truth of suffering and injustice would just break me apart. It would be unbearable. But that's not, paradoxically, that's not actually our experience as we keep in mind wisdom and love as we cultivate it. It's both that sense of being right in the middle, that inclusive wholeness, non-fragmentation, non-division, but also at the same time the heart unburdened. It's really free, the heart. It's a spiritual joy, that freedom of being unburdened. A lot of times, you know, we, we have kind of a cynicism about when we hear somebody talking about love or freedom 
And uh, I remember um, sometimes we read, you know, the, these kind of rare examples where um, this sort of inner species uh, child rearing, like, a, you know, a, a lion's cub, or I'm, I mean, a, a mother lion would raise, you know, uh, the cub or the baby of another species because they can, you know, and the, the child, the baby, whatever, zebra, shows up at just the right time. And it's easy for us to sort of cynically think, well, the motherly instincts of that animal just doesn't, doesn't know better. You know, like a, a, a dog, a female dog raises a, a kitten, you know, or whatever it might be. It just takes them in and lets them drink the milk and, and so on. And it's just interesting to watch our mind when we would hear a story of this, like, you know, something that's sort of sweet and could easily be interpreted in an idealistic way. Oh, I guess that mother dog just, you know, was willing to go beyond their instincts to want to chase the cat or whatever it might be and just have a loving relationship with the kitten or whatever the particular story might be, right? But we want to look at these examples of, um, as an exa- uh, at, at, at these examples as a sign that that the heart doesn't have to be governed by its conditioning, right? That we can go beyond the the reality of conditioning, and we're not negating our conditioning. Like, oh, this is somebody on the inside circle and that's somebody over there on the outside of my circle of friends or circle of relatives. And just to see that, yeah, we need these different circles. We're going to use them in life. But to understand that they're a construction and they they don't limit the heart. And it doesn't mean we're going to raise rattlesnakes and cuddle up with dangerous beings. It just means that the idea of throwing somebody out of our heart, it's actually just a functional thing. Like, how close should I be to somebody? It doesn't actually uh, need to matter in terms of the heart's love, this sort of wise, inclusive, like, we're all living beings here, doing the best we can, and it isn't easy being a living being. And there is, unfortunately, this inherent competitiveness, this you know, life eating life. This is a characteristic of where we find ourselves. And I don't have to be naive or in denial. And on the other hand, I don't have to throw anybody out of my heart. Even if you eat meat, why not be really appreciative of those creatures that lived, most of them in very terrible conditions, that were eating? See, we're afraid to include them in our hearts, because then we have to care. And this is the interesting little boundary we want to explore. Maybe we can care about everything. And maybe we can allow ourselves to be transformed by that tenderness, by that caring, by that open-heartedness. And maybe we don't even have to know where it's going to lead. Oh, no, no, I I have to eat meat, or, you know, I I have to keep these people at some distance, like a homeless person that we see on the street, because if I interact with them, you know, I don't know where that leads. 
then I actually have to start caring about them. And I need to really stay focused on my own life. I don't really have the capacity. And I don't have any answers here, but except maybe to just explore the edges of the heart that can include not needing to throw anybody out of our hearts and really just explore whether or not it's a functional way to be living our life. Like don't, out of habit, conclude that we can't live in this inclusive, generous, open-hearted way, that somehow we'll end up dying a miserable death or something like that, be the doormat of the world and where everybody takes advantage of us. How do we know? And again, it's not like anybody is forcing us, but just to begin to explore the trustworthy experience of love and see where it takes us. I want to read a little bit from Aya Kema. I don't know if people know Aya Kema. She passed away maybe about 20 years ago and uh, a German woman who ordained, one of our first Westerners who ordained as a bhikkhuni, a fully ordained Buddhist nun and was just a, a very impactful teacher here in the West, um, started centers and influenced a number of the Western teachers. And she also wrote a number of books that I, I find quite good. This is from her book, Being Nobody, Going Nowhere, a wonderful title. And it's uh, a chapter on the divine abodes the, of loving kindness and compassion and appreciative joy and equanimity. Our friendships are beset with the same difficulty, namely attachment. We are attached We are attached to our friends. We don't want to lose them. We are nice to them, to them so they'll remain our friends. If they are not equally nice back to us, we immediately consider whether we should remain friends. We want the same friendship back, the same consideration and care. It turns into a commercial enterprise. And a little later in this chapter, she's talking about how we need to train the heart because the habit around love is this love with attachment. So she writes, the heart needs training because it's by nature, it isn't constituted to always feel loving kindness. By nature, it contains both love and hate. It contains ill will, rejection, resentment, and fear, and also love, lovingness. But unless we diminish the hate and enlarge the love by doing something about it in our daily life, we have no chance of experiencing that peaceful feeling which loving kindness generates in the heart. Having love in one's heart, unconditioned, unconditional love for others, creates security in the heart. One knows how one is going to react. It can rely on oneself. One is totally reliable, having no fear. One knows that one is trained to the point where there isn't going to be any reaction of hate or anger, not even a little, to mar one's peacefulness. That is the first and foremost great result of having cultivated loving kindness in one's heart. Now I want to say something here because obviously for all of us maybe, Anger does arise, even those of us who've been practicing for a long time. 
But be honest now, like for myself, when anger or upset arises, very quickly I care about that. So I might still have some anger towards somebody, but in a way, the mind drops that identification with I hate you to, ah, oh, there's hate here and I care about it. And it's it's a very natural way that wisdom diffuses the toxicity of hate. It isn't by being afraid of the hate or repressing anger. It's understanding, oh, there's this heat of hate, there's this contraction of anger, and I care about it. And that diffusing of that uh, toxicity of hate and anger really allows us to find other ways to let that energy move because sometimes moments require a strong response and that fierceness can come from the self-compassion of taking care of ourselves, not from wanting to kill somebody or get rid of somebody, squash somebody, which is what we feel like even, you know, surprisingly with people we truly love. When anger gets triggered, it has this, you know, real anger with identification has this capacity to want to burn it all down, even those ourselves and others that we care about. Because anger with identification doesn't have any wisdom. So the first move is to realize this state of anger hurts and I care about it. And she goes on to write about how this is such a powerful training, learning how to meet anger, hate, fear with love learning that we can always keep love in mind. And it and we know how to do it because it has the flavor of liberation. Love tastes like the freedom from hate, right? So if we know what the constriction of hate, wanting revenge, when we know what that prison feels like, then we can intuit the freedom of love because it's the absence it's really knowing the heart that's empty of hate empty of that constriction of hate in other words it's open it's inclusive it knows how to say yes so one more thing from Thich Nhat Hanh to end he writes we all have the seeds of love in us we can develop this wonderful source of energy Nurturing the unconditional love does, that does not expect anything in return. When we understand someone deeply, even someone who has done us harm, we cannot resist loving them. The Buddha declared that the Buddha of the next eon will be named Maitreya, the Buddha of love. That will be the superpower. <laughs> One of the things in the sort of Buddhist mythology or legends is, you know, every Buddha, there's not just one, we just have the Buddha of our age who lived 2,500 years ago, Shakyamuni Buddha. And there are many Buddhas, of course, and then the, every Buddha has kind of their own personality, their own, and what aspect of their personality really supported their own awakening. So the Buddha of this age that we know about was able to make tremendous effort. So he's considered that was his personality strength. And what uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is reporting in the tradition, the next Buddha, Maitreya, evidently is going to have the superpower in their personality of this unconditional love.
So who knows, maybe we'll be around. <laughs> but technically, you can't have a new Buddha until the teachings of the former Buddha have completely disappeared. And we have the good fortune of still having these teachings around. So anyway, please stay along for the small group. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.